0: <clears throat> the reading today will be from this uh, newer book by uh, Venerable Amalio, Perspectives on Satipatthana. So this was published in 2013, so th- and this one, the one we have been having readings from, is from 2003. <laughs> so, uh, and this is uh, Chapter 2, and it's uh, <coughs> simply called Mindfulness. In this chapter, I examine the quality of mindfulness itself. First, I survey passages in the discourses d- that describe a loss of mindfulness and its consequences. Then I explore the protective function of mindfulness. Finally, I take another look at the relationship between mindfulness and memory, which I have already discussed to some degree in my earlier book on Satipatthana. So firstly, loss of mindfulness. Mindfulness. For an appreciation of the functions of mindfulness in early Buddhist thought, helpful indications can be gathered from passages that depict the results of the absence of mindfulness. Descriptions of what happens when mindfulness is lost indirectly show what functions mindfulness was held to perform. A recurrent theme in such passages is that the absence of mindfulness results in the mind being overwhelmed by sensual desire. The protective function exercised by mindfulness in this way points to an important ethical dimension of mindfulness practice. A discourse in the Sanyutta Nikaya and its Sanyutka Agama parallel, that's the Chinese uh, uh, scriptures, illustrates this ethical dimension with the example of a monk who goes to beg for food, goes on his arms round, without having established mindfulness. Here is the relevant part from the Sanyutka Agama version. So that was the, uh, mentioned at the at the end of the last passage that I read yesterday. Uh, it's the same uh, the same reference. A foolish and ignorant person who dwells in dependence on a village puts on the robes in the morning, takes the arms bowl, and enters the village to beg for alms without properly guarding the body, without restraint of the sense doors, and without the mind being collected through mindfulness. On seeing women he arouses improper attention and grasping the sign of their bodily form, lustful sensual desires appear in his mind. Lustful sensual desires having appeared, he is ablaze with the fire of sensual desire, which burns his body and mind. Like its Sanyuttanikaya parallel, the Sangyutka agama discourse indicates that eventually that monk disrobes. From a monastic, from a monastic perspective, his failure to establish mindfulness together with his not guarding the body and the loss of sense restraint, is thus a rather grave matter. The coexistence in this passage of mindfulness, guarding the body, and sense restraint, shows the close interrelation of these practices. In fact, mindfulness of one's present condition naturally comes with awareness of one's bodily activities and of what one experiences through the senses. Guarding the body and maintaining sense restraint in turn collaborate with established mindfulness, in making one aware as soon as something manifests through the senses that could disturb one's mental equipoise. And that uh, restraint of the senses is Indriya Sangvara. That's the, the Pali term for that. The point of the above description does not seem to be that the monk just forgets what he's about to do because he lacks mindfulness. The parallel versions do not report that he was no longer able to collect his arms food or that he forgot his way back to his dwelling place. Rather, they highlight that he eventually disrobed. The Sanyutka Agama version is more detailed in this respect, as it describes that, once his body and mind were on fire with sensual desire, he was no longer able to delight in being in an empty place or at the root of a tree. That is, recalling his immediate purpose does not appear to be the problem. Instead, the problem is that his lack of mindfulness caused the arising of sensual desire that affected his subsequent life and practice to such an extent that in the end he decided to disrobe. This shows that the quality of mindfulness described in this passage would not represent the monk's ability to keep doing what he had set out to do. Does the monk's loss of mindfulness then imply that he was no longer aware of his role as a monk? After all, if he had been aware of his role as a monk, he would have, been, he would have avoided looking at women in a way that arouses lust in his mind. A similar passage in another discourse in the Samyutta Nikaya and in the Sangyutka Agama suggests that this is also not the central function of mindfulness in such a situation. This passage depicts a king who faces the same problem. When he enters his harem without sense restraint, without protecting the body, and without having established mindfulness, he is overwhelmed by lust. For a king to be aware of his role would not be such, not much help in such a situation, since that role is quite compatible with feeling lustful desires for the females in his harem. Thus a loss of mindfulness leading to the arising of sensual desire does not appear to be necessarily related to forgetting one's role or what one is about to do. The problem of a lack of mindfulness leading to the arising of lust recurs in a set of stanzas in a discourse in the Samyutta Sam, uh, Nikaya with parallels in the Sangyutka Agama and in a discourse quotation preserved in the Tibetan translation. These stanzas elaborate on the meaning of a succinct teaching also given, according to a discourse in Udana, on another occasion to the ascetic Bahiya, which I also quoted from um, a day or two ago, instructing that one should remain just with what is seen, heard, etc. Here is the relevant passage from the Sanyutka Agama. If on having seen a form with the eye, right mindfulness has been lost, then in relation to the form that has been seen, the sign will be grasped with thoughts of craving. For one who grasps the sign with craving and delight, the mind will constantly be bound by attachment. In agreement with its parallels, the Sangyutka Agama discourse indicates that the same detrimental repercussions can be expected for being without mindfulness at the other sense doors. Given that in this stanza, guarding the body and sense restraint are not mentioned, it becomes clear that it is precisely the loss of mindfulness that is responsible for lust manifesting in the mind when one sees forms, etc., by contrast, when mindfulness is established, one is able to remain just with what is seen, etc., without unwholesome reactions arising. This helps to explain the role of mindfulness in the passages depicting the repercussions of being without mindfulness. When mindfulness is established, one becomes fully aware of what is present, without getting carried away by mental reactions. Being mindful in this way, in what is seen, there will truly be only what is seen. The task is not to avoid seeing things altogether but to see them without unwholesome reactions. Being fully aware of what is taking place right now, that reacting in unwholesome ways, is central to the protective function of mindfulness. So this is all uh, talking about, the, um, in a way, also the aspect of uh, the mind creating pathways, so that if, um, <clears throat> in this instance, um, you know, the monk going on his arms round and seeing a, a woman that he was attracted to, then that sort of sets off the... Conceptual proliferations in the mind, and then uh, say so causes the mind to keep wandering down that pathway, and so that when he gets back to his dwelling place and, and gets back to the, to the monastery, then that um, uh, that fire have, having been ignited, then uh, the, the mind is uh, still prone to following those pathways, so that that lack of of mindfulness then has sort of um, uh, you know, trigger that uh, the past causes of, of attachment and um, uh, say the, the the roots of sensual desire being reawakened in that person, so that the um, the lack of mindfulness is in a way it's like the the dropping a match into a hay barn that the, that if there is enough uh, hay in the hay barn and the match is lit then the the, the barn will will go up so that the um, the quality of restraint of the senses and maintaining mindfulness is one aspect of that if you're going to go into a hay barn, don't strike any matches. Uh, uh, ideally, um, through, through the practice and through the development of, of wisdom, then you have less uh, hay in the barn, so less, less fuel that's likely to go up in, in, uh, in flames, insofar as that, um, the potential of the mind moving towards uh, habits of aversion or greed or, or um, you know, desire and delusion and so forth. So that that fuel for attachment and such like is is uh, reduced and diminished. But uh, as long as one is you know, working with uh, the uh, the average mind, that there is a, the potential for uh, aversion and greed and uh, and, uh, and so forth, and desire, then that quality of sense restraint and the quality of sustaining the quality of mindfulness is a, 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 a major support. And um, this quotation from the Bahiya Sutta, which is... Uh, uh, is I checked out the reference. It was uh, in the um, Udana. It's the the tenth sutta in the first section of the Udana, um, this discourse to Bahia. and so that is pointing out that when there is mindfulness, then that uh, in a way that's uh, the with with uh, the, the Buddha's description to Bahia, is in a way it's saying when there is a, a mindfulness and wisdom, then that uh, there isn't any kind of uh, igniting of any uh, potential for, um, for desire or aversion or fear and, and so forth. There's unwholesome roots, but uh, as it says in that sutta, in the scene there is only the seen, in the herd there is only the herd, in the sense there is only the sensed, and that uh, there isn't a, what he calls the, the grasping of the sign, that, uh, that you hear a sound think, oh, that's awful, or... You hear a, a a sounding. Oh, that's beautiful. You see something. Oh, that's really attractive. Or that's really you know, disgusting. Well, <clears throat> that the the mind is uh, the more there is an establishment of mindfulness and wisdom. Then when there is that that sense contact, there's a recognition. Oh, that's a, a something that is um, that is pleasant or is unpleasant. Or is uh, the mind registers that as as beautiful or ugly. But it doesn't make anything out of it. It doesn't create a a story around that that perception and it doesn't uh, um, lead to the quality of of craving, either aversion, or desire, or fear, greed, and and so forth. So in terms of, um, speaking of this in terms of the uh, dependent origination cycle, uh, in the the Buddha's descriptions of that, that, there is sense contact, the, the eye sees a form, the ear hears a sound, and the nose smells an odor. The body senses a feeling, and so forth. And <clears throat> there is a there is a um, sense contact. There is a feeling, uh, a pleasant, painful, or neutral. And then uh, that, uh, w- when there is sufficient mindfulness and wisdom, then that feeling, the vedana, does not lead to craving. It doesn't lead to to tanha. There's a, 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 a and in the Classical descriptions of the of the forest tradition. One of the most common themes for um, for meditation and, and spiritual advice is that that uh, that bridge between feeling and craving is is the weakest link in the uh, the cycle of dependent origination, the cycle of, of birth and death. That if the uh, the sufficient quantities of mindfulness and wisdom are developed, then whether there's a painful feeling or a pleasant feeling, whether it's attached to the eye, the ear, the nose, tongue, the body, or, or whatever, whatever the, the perception might be, or mental formation, an idea or a memory, uh, think it, uh, it does not cross from that quality of feeling, there's just a, a pleasant feeling or a painful feeling, There can be a I like or I don't like, but it does not form into, uh, into craving, because once the, the um, like the image of the match being dropped into the hay barn, once the, the match is in the hay, then the, the fire's already going, so then it get, becomes more challenging to put it out, so that uh, in, in the descriptions of the cycle of dependent origination, then you have craving leads to clinging, clinging leads to becoming, becoming leads to birth, uh, ageing and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair and so on, so that uh, it's far easier not to light the match in the first place or if the lamp match is lit, don't drop it in the in the hay. And so that uh, this um, encouragement towards uh, Tamal's to mindfulness and also this aspect of of um, uh, guarding the body and maintaining sense restraint, the indriya sangvara. Um, so that's like mindfulness of the body, being, being aware of, of walking, being aware of sitting, being aware of you know, where you are and what you're doing, and then guarding the senses, not putting into... Uh, into your senses, things that are are likely to uh, create fear or aversion or or craving where the mind gets lost and that's a a large part of of the training. Not to um, say (coughs) it's not a a worshipping of um, of desensitization, it's not like walking around with your eyes closed or your ears blocked up (laughs) but uh, sense restraint in terms of recognizing where we get lost the things that create aversion to us that the the things that create desire or the things that create fear and greed um, that when there's a choice to uh, to not put those things into your field of perception then that it's wise to, to not uh, to not make those choices to, to not follow those particular uh, possibilities uh, because we know if that's where we get lost, that's where we get caught up that's where we get you know, upset and distressed then um, uh, then we're we're just making things more difficult for ourselves so the in the um, the second discourse in the uh, in the Majjima Nikaya, the middle length discourse is called the Sabhasava Sutta. as a list of seven different ways of that the Buddha describes of of helping the mind not to get caught in those kind of outflows, getting caught up in in the, the sense world or in mind states, and one of them is just um, what is called um, uh, right res- right resort or the, your gochara, where, where you choose to go. So if you if you walk around in the dark um, at night time, then you're going to fall you're going to fall into a ditch or fall into a cesspit or you're going to run into um, stray dogs running around in the streets so that uh, you don't wander around at night, otherwise you're going to fall in a cesspit. <laughs> that uh, it's sort of, uh, so much of it is common sense. Like if you walk around in the dark and you haven't got any light, then you're, gonna, you're likely to stumble into things that are, are uncomfortable or difficult. So um, that, uh, uh, say, uh, um, discretion in terms of, of what we choose to put into our minds and, uh, and the choices that we make of, of where to go, what to listen to, what to uh, who to be with, um, who to choose uh, as our friends, or, you know, uh, how we um, say uh, choose to occupy our time, all those things make a difference. So from an idealistic point of view we might feel, well we should just be open to everything or we should be able to experience anything and not, not get lost. Uh, well, from an idealistic point of view that might be true, but if, uh, if you take the advice of the Buddha, it's like, well don't, don't ask for trouble. <laughs> If you're going to walk around at night time, take a torch and <laughs> make sure you got you got uh, a source of light so you can see where you're going, so you don't fall into a cesspit and so on. Hmm. I've had something going around in my mind for a few days now. So it seems to me that sati has an ethical
1: dimension from, from everything you've been saying. It's not said in the text, but because everything you, you apply mindfulness in order to, to to go in the right direction. So in, in a sense, you're, you're already acting on an intention. Sorry, acting on an intention, um, a wholesome intention, in order to to have right mindfulness. Mm. So
0: do you think that's that's the right way of looking at it? Oh, well, it's in, he does he does look into that um, in the the next passage in in this book, which I'll go on to <laughs> after this chapter. Um, he talks more about um, sati uh, as a, um, sort of the sati on its own is sort of before the right effort arises. So in a way, it gives you the the ethical sense, and then it informs the choices that you make. But he, he's quite sort of detailed about it, and so he goes into terms like choiceless awareness or um, uh, that uh, that kind of. Um, uh, uh, Say re- reviewing or assessing of the situation, and then the choices of what to, what to do or what's what's the wise uh, effort to make coming from that. But sati on its own is um, uh, it, it's, it's sort of it's informing the effort, but it's uh, to, or, or the choice of action, but it's not um, sort of a, a particularly about the action itself. If that makes sense. Yeah. So we'll get on to that in due course. Uh, and Also, I think in this, this section of this, this chapter, as the gatekeeper, that element of discretion it comes into that as well. Anyway, the next section is protective mindfulness. The notion of protection through establishing mindfulness finds an illustration in a simile in another discourse in the Sangyuta Nikaya and in the Sangyutka Agama that involves a monkey. In what follows, I translate the Sangyutka Agama version of the simile. Among the Himalayas, there are icy and steep places, difficult to access, even for monkeys, let alone humans. There are also mountains where monkeys dwell, but no humans. There are also mountains where people and animals dwell together. The hunter takes sticky resin and puts it on top of some grass in a place where monkeys roam. Those monkeys who are clever keep far away from it, and, uh, and leave but a foolish monkey is unable to avoid it it touches a little with the hand and the resin sticks to the hand using the second hand it then wishes to get off and tries to be free from it so both hands stick to the resin with the feet it tries to get it off and the resin sticks to the feet as well with the mouth it gnaws the grass and thereby the resin sticks to the mouth the resin sticks to these five parts alike so both hands, both feet and the mouth the monkey lies on the ground, joined together, as if it were rolled up. The hunter comes, spears the monkey on a stick, and carrying it on his back, leaves. So that's a grim, <laughs> uh, grim outcome for the monkey. The parallel versions agree that the simile illustrates the need to, be, uh, to beware of straying from one's ancestral domain. The four satipatanas. Straying out of this ancestral domain takes place when one pursues the pleasures of the five senses, which the Sangyutta Nikaya version identifies as the domain of Mara, the Buddhist personification of what obstructs the path to liberation. The Sangyutta Agama discourse, translated above, then continues by illustrating how one strays from one's own domain of the four Satipatthanas with the example of a monk who goes begging without proper, properly protecting the body and without sense restraint. On seeing objects of the five senses, lust and attachment arise, whereby the monk is bound in five ways and at the mercy of Mara. This echoes the passage discussed above, in which a monk who is without mindfulness becomes prey to sensual desire on seeing women during his arms round. In the terms of the simile of the monkey, without the protective distance afforded by established mindfulness, one is in danger of getting stuck, quote-unquote, in the world of the five senses. Once this happens, the tendency is to get ever more stuck through mental elaborations and associations, like the silly monkey who ends up with all its limbs stuck to the resin. To avoid getting stuck in the world of the senses, one had better stay in the high mountain areas of mindfulness practice. Now the simile on Satipatthana, as one's proper domain, describes a quail caught by a hawk. Here is the Sanyutka Agama version of the simile. In the distant past, there was a bird of a species called the quail. It had been caught by a hawk, who flew up high into the sky. So, quail are a little sort of mostly ground birds. They can fly a little bit off the ground, but they're generally like chickens. They sort of they don't fly particularly well. And they have little sort of bubbles on their heads, uh, <coughs> and um, so they are more sort of ground-dwelling birds. And this one had been caught by a hawk, which uh, flew up high into the sky. Up in the sky the quail called out, I was not alert and suddenly I met with misfortune because I departed from my ancestral domain and journeyed to another place. Therefore I met with this misfortune. How else could I today be put in this difficulty by him unable to be free? The hawk said to the quail, What is the place of your own domain where you are able to be free? The quail replied, My own domain is in the midst of a ploughed furrow in a farm field. There I am fully free from misfortunes. That's my home and my ancestral domain. The hawk's pride was aroused. It said to the quail, I'll set you free to leave, to return amidst your ploughed furrows. Will you be able to escape me thereby? And the quail got out from the claws of the hawk and returned to the ploughed furrow, to a big clod below which there was a safe place to stay. Then it went on top of the clod, wanting to give battle to the hawk. The hawk was greatly enraged, thinking, That is just a little bird, and it dares to give battle to me. Extremely angry, it quickly s- flew straight down to fight. Then the quail entered beneath the clod and hid underneath it. The hawk, by the power of its flight, dashed with its breast against the solid clod, shattered its body and died. So bad luck for the hawk on that, in that respect. <clears throat> the Sangyuta Parallel reports that on being caught, the quail laments its lack of merit and luck rather than blaming itself. The Sanyutka Agama version, in comparison, gives more emphasis to the quail's negligence as the reason for its capture by the hawk. This accords with the main point of the simile in both versions, namely that one should not be negligent and stray out of one's proper domain, the four Satipatthanas, in order not to to be caught. The simile's illustration of the protective function of Satipatthana as a safe ground that enables one to withstand the allure of sensually enticing objects, concords with the passages discussed above that describe how a loss of mindfulness results in being overwhelmed by sensual desire. The fact that the weak quail is able to overcome the strong hawk seems to convey the message that by sticking to mindfulness, one can withstand situations that, without mindfulness, could be quite overpowering. The similes of the monkey and the quail converge on the notion of protection through establishing mindfulness. Other discourses highlight that mindfulness is indeed the one factor that offers protection. In this way, establishing mindfulness enables one to deal with the outside world without being swept away by the streams of desire or aversion. This finds a succinct expression in a stanza from the Sutta Nipata that, in a parallel that has been preserved in the Yogacara Bhumi reads as follows. Those streams that are in the world are held in check by mindfulness of mindfulness as a gatekeeper. The notion of protection also comes up in a different way in two similes that compare mindfulness to a gatekeeper of a border town. In what follows I translate the Sanyutka Agama version of one of these two similes. It is just as a border country king who has the walls of the city well kept in order, the gates with a firm foundation and the access roads level and straight. He has placed four gatekeepers at the four city gates, all of whom are clever and wise, knowing those who come and go. In that city there are four access roads towards the the couch that has been prepared for the Lord of the city to sit upon. Suppose from the eastern direction a messenger comes and asks the gatekeeper, Where is the Lord of the city? He answers, The Lord is in the middle of the city at the end of the four access roads seated on a couch. Having heard this, the messenger approaches the Lord of the city Having delivered his message, he receives an instruction and returns by the road. So, too, from the southern, the western, and the northern direction, a messenger comes and asks the gatekeeper, Where is the Lord of the City? He answers, In the middle of the city, at the end of the four access roads. Having heard it, they all approach the Lord of the City, deliver their message, receive an instruction, and return to their former place. The Sangyutka Agama version continues by identifying the four gatekeepers with the four satipattanas. A parallel found in the Sangyuta Nikaya describes only a single gatekeeper, who represents mindfulness. A third parallel preserved in Tibetan translation also has only a single gatekeeper, which according to its presentation stands for mindfulness of the body. Another difference is that, while the above-translated Sanyutka Agama version identifies the messenger as insight, Vipassana, the Sangyuta Nikaya version and the Tibetan parallel speak of two messengers representing insight and tranquillity. Whether the messenger is insight alone or insight together with tranquility, the task of the gatekeeper in this simile is to show the path by which the messengers can reach the lord of the city, who represents consciousness, according to all versions. Vijnana. Thus the gatekeeper in this simile seems to reflect the monitoring role of mindfulness in relation to insight and tranquility. Through mindfulness... Be this mindfulness in general, mindfulness of the body, or all four satipatthanas, one is aware of the proper route to be taken in cultivating insight and tranquility. The simile thus throws into relief the function of mindfulness as the mental quality that monitors progress on the path to liberation and thereby protects one from taking the wrong route. So that also uh, resonates with what I was saying yesterday about the, um, uh, particularly about the five indriya, the five spiritual faculties. So you've got if you remember the, the, the image of the bird um, uh, again, so they have sati in the middle, it's like the body of the bird. Then uh, as on, on either side you have uh, energy, virya balanced with samadhi, concentration, and sadha, faith, balanced with panya, wisdom. So that, uh, they're like the, the wings of the bird. And the, the function of sati is to be at the center that's balancing uh, concentration and energy and balancing wisdom and, and faith. So that it has that same kind of monitoring, assessing, and informing the choices that are made towards sort of more energy, less energy, more uh, concentration, less concentration, more wisdom, less faith, more faith, less wisdom, and so on. Another simile that also takes up the motif of mindfulness as a gatekeeper occurs in a discourse in the Nikaya and in its Majama-Agama parallel. Here is the Majama-Agama version of the simile. It is just as if in the king's border town a chief officer has been appointed as a gatekeeper, one who is sharp-witted and wise in making decisions, brave and resolute, of excellent counsel, who allows entry to the good and keeps out the bad, in order to ensure peace within and to control outside enemies. In the same way, a noble disciple continuously dwells with mindfulness, achieves right mindfulness, always recalling and not forgetting what was practiced or heard long ago. This is a noble disciple's gaining of mindfulness as the gatekeeper, as the chief officer who removes what is bad and unwholesome and develops wholesome states. A parallel in the Anguttara Nikaya similarly indicates that the gatekeeper of mindfulness represents the ability to recall and not forget what was done or heard long ago. The reference in the two parallel versions to remembering what was done and what was heard points to different types of memories. The first type would be memory of autobiographical events. To recall what one has heard, however, points to an ability of considerable importance in an oral culture like ancient India, namely memorization. The early Buddhist reciters had to rely precisely on this ability to transmit the teachings of the Buddha and his disciples to future generations. Therefore, it can safely be assumed that the practical need to be able to remember well what one has heard long ago must have exerted its influence on the early Buddhist theory and practice of mindfulness. So, this uh, image of the gatekeeper, um, and so sort of as it uh, uh, spells out, um, the, the astute gatekeeper of a city is uh, is able to to watch and observe. You know, who are the the people that are, are friendly and are, are helpful? Uh, who are the um, uh, the uh, citizens who are sort of um, uh, say living um, in accord with the people in the city and who are the um, the ones who are dangerous who are uh, outside enemies and so forth allows entry to the good and keeps out the bad, so that that um, uh, what we 're saying about the the ethical dimension the, that that sense of the gatekeeper of recognizing okay well this is <coughs> If, if this is allowed in, if this particular feeling of uh, irritation is, is welcomed in and, and nursed, uh, then that's going to cause uh, problems later on. Or if this particular feeling of uh, loving-kindness and uh, compassion is, uh, is allowed in, then that's going to be a blessing to uh, ourselves and to others. Um, and so that, that quality of, of recognizing the wholesome and the unwholesome, the kusala and the akusala is sort of there in that, that gatekeeper mode. <clears throat> um, when uh, in, in this respect, it's like the with the meditation practice. One of the things I, I always like to emphasize is that that quality of, uh, of of acceptance. So that the gatekeeper's job is not just to um, uh, <clears throat> to be angry and difficult. The gatekeeper's job is to to be discerning, to meet everyone who comes. Because sometimes people might have uh, might look really awful and look really dangerous or difficult but uh, they are sort of genuine citizens of the, of the town and they, and they belong and they, are, uh, they have um, good wishes. So similarly, uh, or those that, that look kind of sweet and friendly and nice might actually be quite harmful. So the job of the gatekeeper is to have an acceptance and to say, okay, what have we got here? To, to be able to meet everything that arises with, a, with an even uh, and uh, open attitude. So in that respect, I always... I like to emphasize that that quality of loving-kindness or metta uh, is a, an accept, a quality of acceptance or, or a, a sense of readiness to receive whatever arises, whether a state is wholesome or unwholesome, beautiful, ugly or, or neutral, there needs to be that quality of, well, here it is, here's, the, here's this, this feeling, this thought, this mood, uh, this perception, uh, it's like this, this particular uh, sight or sound or uh, feeling, this thought, this emotion. And that uh, that quality of uh, of the impartiality of the gatekeeper is like yes everything is accept is uh, is accepted, but then uh, on the basis of that uh, of that acceptance yes you know, here is this person they're worthy of of my um, interest and uh, yes I should sort of meet them and receive them and hear what they've got to say, but then also the job of the gatekeeper is is to say to some people no. <laughs> no no entry you you know you, you can't come in and uh the, the uh this i feel is is extremely helpful in terms of uh the the right attitude towards meditation because we can easily uh tell the, the mind states that we don't like the, the stray thoughts or the obsessive uh, uh worries or, or desires um uh, concerns, irritations and so forth, we can uh, think oh i shouldn't I, I shouldn't uh, allow this obsessive thought in or I want to uh, get rid of this uh, angry feeling, and so then we very easily start a, a fight against the unskillful and unwholesome mind states but the uh, the in a way the job of of that mindfulness that, that quality of the the gatekeeper is to be First of all, to be accepting like to be okay this is this is a feeling um, it belongs it's part of nature and then having uh, had a say an open and receptive attitude to it, and say yes, it belongs it's part of nature you know all these these good beings have a right to come up to the gate, but i don't have to let everybody in it 's just like um, the example I usually give is to say that it, <coughs> If you if you wanted to, to leave Amravati and go to to Hemel, you get down to the crossroads in Great Gadsden, and you go right. You don't go left. You go left. You get it takes you to Leighton Buzzard. If you go right, it takes you to Hemel. It's not that the road to Leighton Buzzard is evil and bad. It's just if you want to go to Hemel, you take a right. You don't take a left. So similarly, when you have a, an unwholesome state of mind, some you know a feeling of anger or irritation. A, 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 Cover an egotistical opinion or self-righteous feeling that you don't have to suppress that or hate that or or fear it just say, well that's just a self-righteous, egotistical opinion Uh, and it doesn't have to be followed, it doesn't have to be believed in, it doesn't have to be picked up it's like, I'm choosing to to not go left, I'm choosing to go right here. Uh, Similarly, when things are, are wholesome, the mind is quite focused and clear um, rather than than sort of grasping that and and uh, oh this is really good things are going well this is what I want, this is great. Um, it's not uh, similarly. It's just well okay. This is the direction I want to go. Just just take a ride. Right. You don't have to obsess with the, about the road to Hamel. It's just the road to Hamel. <laughs> if you just follow along, it, it's going to take you where you want to go. You don't have to get um, sort of uh, attached to it or identify with it or, or excited about it. So that this. Um, uh, this image of the, the discerning gatekeeper is a very helpful one because that's, uh, it's not that you're uh, uh, say, chasing after the good and attaching to the good or, or rejecting and fighting against the bad but rather uh, you're able to say okay, you, you can come in no, sorry, you can't come in and that it's, there, there's an evenness uh, of attitude there but there is a discrimination sometimes people feel like we shouldn't be discriminating any kind of choosing is somehow Anathema. Somehow, it's sort of anti-dhamma to make any kind of choice or to discriminate. If you had non-discriminating awareness, Ajahn, you let it all in. <laughs> well, it's rather like well, if that's the case, then you <laughs> all places on the map are, are equally uh, equally good. If your home happens to be in Hamel, you have <laughs> you'd need to do some discriminating. Like yeah, like yeah, all places are equal, but my house is in Hemel. so <laughs> that's. <laughs> You know, I can't kind just of sort of show up in Leighton buzzes and say hi. Can I? Can I come in? Well, who are you? you know. <laughs> I say, well, uh, I just uh, I just thought I'd use this as my home. You know, why not? You know, all homes are equal. You know, no need to be discriminating. So excuse me, get out. <laughs> you, you don't belong here. So common sense uh, tells us that um, yeah, there's they might have an idea uh, an ideal of non-discrimination, but I feel it's, yes, there's a, that, that basis of, of acceptance, yeah, all things are part of nature, yeah, but there are places that uh, say that are going to be of benefit, the, the wholesome qualities, and those are the ones that, that we choose to develop, not because we hate or fear the unwholesome, but because that, uh, if uh, the wholesome is, is followed and developed, then that leads to clarity towards peacefulness, towards harmony between ourselves and others. And if the unwholesome is followed, then it leads to confusion and conflict and difficulty. And so, it's, uh, it's recognizing that the uh, you're not sort of saying that the wholesome is an absolute good, but just if that is followed, then that creates the conditions for uh, awakening and and benefit for yourself and others. Whereas the 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 the, uh, uh, the unwholesome is not an absolute evil or something that's intrinsically bad and wrong, but if that's followed and pursued, then it's going to lead towards more agitation, confusion, and a difficulty of, of seeing uh, the way things are. It's yes? When, when you read that and explain that, I get the sense that,
1: you know, mindfulness is, so what you know, said, mindfulness is, is depending on memory. Of it. In terms of Buddha's teachings, your mindfulness is more informed of what is helpful or is good for it. because you know from your own experience of, or from, from what you have read. So mindfulness, in that sense, seems to be really um, something which is evolving in the in the course of practice, not just having mindfulness or having not mindfulness. Mm-hmm. But
0: So it's operating that is getting uh, wiser. Yeah, there's, there's degrees of it, and, and the degree of it being informed, and that memory and you know, the capacity to draw on the teachings and apply them appropriately is, uh, is extremely useful. So, uh, the next section is mindfulness and memory, where he revisits some of these, these themes. Yes.
2: And yesterday you presented two similes that were talking about the precision with which one should maintain mindfulness, and that's something I was wondering about. One simile was talking about the man holding oil and the
0: A bowl sh- filled with, with oil so that it was brimful, yes.
2: Yes, and if he, he had to be extremely careful because if he just one drop fell out, his head would be cut mm-hmm. And then another simile was talking about the herd keeper who, when things were okay in the summertime, he could just relax. But still, watch the cows. Mm-hmm. So they seem a bit contradictory, the two approaches. I'm just wondering how careful one should be. When things are okay, when there's
0: not, well, there are no evil states. Very um, well, the the both similes were given by the Buddha. So, uh, but the if you remember the one where if it's if the mind is imbued with wholesome states, that's when you can snooze under the tree and let the cows wander where they like. But then if um, you know, in that simile, uh, of course, that season of wholesome states might be a very, very short season. <laughs> <So> suddenly, oops, <laughs> you know, the crops have started growing again, and uh, you need to watch out for the cows you know, wandering into the, into the grass. So that um, generally, that uh, uh, quality of uh, acute attention is going to be helpful, because my experience is that the mind can go from wholesome states to unwholesome states very, very fast. Like a monkey jumping through the trees, speaking of monkeys. You know, jumping from one branch to another. So err on the side of caution. Okay, this next section is uh, revisiting mindfulness and, and memory once again. The relationship of these two types of memory, so that's the autobiographical uh, memory and then um, memory of, of um, uh, what was... Say, uh, said and done long ago. The relationship of these two types of memory to the situation depicted in the above simile is not immediately evident. There's a clear parallel uh, between the gatekeepers preventing the bad from entering the city and the task of mindfulness in keeping the bad out of the mind. The role that memory plays in this respect, however, needs further exploration. In order to be able to distinguish those who are entitled to enter from those who are not, the gatekeeper needs to rely on his memory. However, such reliance on memory is something that is common to any of his states of mind. It's not specific to his task at the city gate. Going home after work, he needs to remember the way home. And returning to work at the gate the next day, he also needs to remember the meaning of concepts like city gate, my work duty, etc. The aspect of the mind that's responsible for this type of memory is perception, sannyā. Perception is what matches experience with concepts learned earlier something required for almost any state of mind. In fact, it's hard to think of any intentional human activity that is not in some way informed by past experiences and does not depend on concepts and ideas learned earlier. It would be problematic to assign the memory of such past experiences, concepts or ideas to mindfulness on its own, since it would follow that someone without any kind of meditative training is pretty much continuously mindful. In order to preserve the distinct function and meaning of mindfulness, it seems to me to reflect the canonical position better if this kind of basic remembering is considered as a function of perception. So, rather than just ordinary memory being a, an aspect of mindfulness, you're saying that's part of just the regular function of sanya, perception. As the passages describing the consequences of a loss of mindfulness clearly show, from an early Buddhist viewpoint, mindfulness is something that needs to be intentionally brought into being. These passages do not give the impression that the mere ability to remember a concept is central to their notion of mindfulness. In fact, the passage quoted above does not just mention a gatekeeper's ability to recognize, but instead draws attention to his ability to allow entry to the good and keep out the bad. Alternatively, perhaps the relation to memory in this simile can be found in the gatekeeper's need to remember what he's supposed to do. This would fit the simile, although it would not work so well with a subsequent explanation. According to this explanation, the purpose of the simile is to illustrate that through mindfulness one is able to recall what happened long ago. Such an ability does not have a straightforward relation to remembering what one is supposed to do. This much can also be seen from the passages that take up a loss of mindfulness, where the examples do not seem to be about forgetting what one has set out to do. To execute his duty of allowing entry to the good... And keeping out the bad, the gatekeeper needs, above all, to be fully aware of what is happening at the city gate. His task is to be aware of who is entering it right now, and he must not be distracted from his present moment awareness by dwelling on the past. It seems to me that the motif of the gatekeeper of mindfulness stands for being fully aware in the present moment at the gates of one's mind, which is precisely the quality that enables preventing the bad, desire, and aversion from entering the city of one's mind. That is, I would see the gatekeeper simile as pointing to the same protective functions of mindfulness as are illustrated in the similes of the monkey and the quail. The relationship of mindfulness to memory then emerges naturally from the fact that being fully aware in the present moment is precisely the quality of the mind that facilitates later remembering. It will only be possible to remember that of which one has been aware So if you weren't aware of it, you can't remember it. (laughs) The more fully you've been aware of something, the easier it is to remember it. Makes sense to me. The more one has been aware, the better one will be able to remember. If mindfulness was established, it will indeed be possible to recall what was done or heard, even if it happened long ago. In the case of the gatekeeper, his present moment awareness needs to be somewhat broad or panoramic as he has to remain alert to the whole situation at the gate. He cannot allow himself to focus on one particular person coming in at the expense of losing sight of others who are also moving through the gate. As the first gatekeeper simile shows, his overview of the entire situation is not limited to what happens at the gate, as he may also be required to inform messengers of the path from the gate to the lord of the city. But he nevertheless stays at the gate fulfilling his task of being fully aware of whatever happens in the present moment, thereby being able to discern the good from the bad. In practical terms, this means that if one is doing something with such awareness that it can later be remembered easily, then one is indeed being mindful. Walking towards the meditation hall, for example, I could be mindful of my walking, or else be lost in thinking, perhaps dwelling on some memories of the past. The fact that at a certain point I have reached the meditation hall clearly means that I must have walked there. But if I have not been mindful of the walking, I will not be able to recall the experience of having walked. I will only be able to conclude that I must have walked to the hall by inference since I am now in the meditation hall. (laughs) If I have been mindful, however, I will be able to recall the walk. This does not necessarily mean remembering every minute detail of the path that I took but the experience of having walked towards the hall will be available for my recall simply because I was aware when this experience happened. Even without mindfulness, some degree of attention has to be with the walking, otherwise it will be impossible to keep on the path or even to take the next step. But the attention required for such semi-automatic actions can be quite superficial. Most of the mind can be involved with something else at the same time, such as daydreaming, dwelling in memories, or of anticipating the future. When one is mindful of walking, however, and the mind is present with the experience of walking in an open and receptive manner, then one is fully with the experience of walking, and thus more fully and accurately aware of it. With such a way of being mindful of one's walking, attention becomes somewhat panoramic, in the sense of being aware of the whole situation instead of singling out uh, one of its details and focusing on it to the exclusion of anything else. Such broad and receptive awareness would indeed make it possible, if needed, for the experience of walking to be recalled later. This type of alert, broad and receptive awareness is what makes a difference in one's ability to recall past actions. So, so this isn't just true of walking. It's quite common people uh, <coughs> get in the car and then find themselves in, in the middle of Berkhamstead or uh, the, the local town and go, What did I come here for? I remember, I remember starting the car, and, and then suddenly they, they find themselves in town. They've driven for 10 or 15 minutes and haven't got a, a clue of, of anything that happened along the way. They, well, I must have driven here, because here I am in town. <laughs> but there might, particularly if it's a very familiar route, uh, then you're, you can be completely on automatic pilot and um, not, uh, not really aware of what you're, what you're doing at all. While mindfulness is thus different from the basic form of attention that appears to be present in any state of mind, attention is nevertheless closely related to mindfulness. In fact, in several discourses, thorough attention yoniso parallels aspects of Satipatthana meditation practice. What makes the difference, however, is that the basic function of attention is present in any state of mind, unlike mindfulness or thorough attention, which have to be cultivated and intentionally brought into being. The cultivation of a strengthened and thereby to some degree broadened form of attention makes it possible to remember easily what one did in the past. These two aspects of strengthening and broadening are to some extent interrelated. Remaining firmly established in mindfulness without immediately reacting in a judgmental manner and without being carried away by mental elaborations allows for awareness of more aspects and details of the present situation. Thus, a broader range of data can be taken in by the mind. Expressed in terms of photography, being mindful is like taking a picture with a long exposure time with a wide-angle lens. In sum, when considered from the viewpoint of satipatthana meditation practice, I consider as a, a, I consider a central import of the memory nuance of mindfulness to be that an intensified and broadened form of attention given to what is occurring in the present enriches one's awareness of what's happening to such an extent that this strengthens one's ability to recall later what took place. Precisely this enriched present moment of mindfulness forms a continuous theme throughout the different Satipatthana exercises, enabling awareness of the condition of one's body, the hedonic tone of feelings, the present condition of one's state of mind, etc. As the mental quality that holds things in mind in the present moment, Mindfulness is responsible not only for proper memory storage but also for the quality of mind that makes it easy to retrieve things from memory later. As I suggested in my earlier book, this one, the aspect of mindfulness becomes evident when one fails to remember something because the mind is excessively focused. On laying the question aside and allowing the mind to return to, to a more open and broad, broad-minded condition, one may find that the information arises in the mind on its own. This aspect of mindfulness, uh, concerned with facilitating the actual remembering of information from the past, is prominent in relation to the practice of recollection, anusati, and of less relevance to the satipatthana meditation. While these two modes of meditation have much in common, a chief requirement for satipatthana is that the practitioner remains mentally anchored in the present moment. The task is to examine one's bodily condition now, to recognize how one feels in the present and how one's mind is at this precise moment, rather than to recall what happened earlier. It is this type of mindfulness in the present moment, developed through Satipatthana meditation, that is an integral part of the Noble Eightfold Path to Liberation. If mindfulness were just about remembering things from the past, there would have been no need for the scheme of the four Satipatthanas as an elaboration of the path factor of right mindfulness. In order to inculcate the ability to recall the past, the practice of memorizing texts that was undertaken anyway by early Buddhist disciples to transmit what they considered to be the word of the Buddha would have been amply sufficient. Following the Vedic model of oral transmission, this could have become their main training ground for cultivating the ability to remember. According to the Manu Shmirti, the laws of Manu, the ability to recollect past lives requires recitation of the Vedas, which means their memorization, Together with pure conduct and austerities. Thus, the very fact that a scheme of the four satipatthanas has come into existence makes it clear that in early Buddhist thought, mindfulness is not just about recalling the past. So, to underscore that, also that uh, um, even though he's sort of going into some detail about mindfulness and memory uh, here and their relationship, uh, it can be that the thought is, "Well, my memory is terrible, therefore, uh, I must have really uh, bad mindfulness." <laughs> you know that if there is that sense of trying to remember facts names dates and um as the years go by having more and more of those blank spaces in the uh, what was the name of that 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 place what was the name of that town what was that actor's uh, uh, what was that actor called that uh, that we can feel that oh that means i'm not i'm not mindful or that um uh, uh the um my practice is, is falling apart. So I, I'd just like to emphasize that, um, that just because uh, you can't remember things or that names and dates and so forth are, are uh, less easily recalled, it doesn't mean to say one's being less mindful, because um, it's in a way that, that uh, if there is a... Um, you're, you're, by being mindful you're sort of supporting the conditions for things to be remembered, but it doesn't guarantee that, that that memory will be there. So the most important thing is not suffering. Like uh, I remember, uh, I've often uh, recollected this um, interview they had with uh, Father B. Griffiths, who was this very uh, wonderful elderly Christian monk who had, um, he founded uh, this uh, sort of Christian ashram in India, so sort of Hindu Christian ashram in, in India, the um, Shantivanam ashram, and uh he used to to come and give talks in the U.S. from time to time, and they were they were interviewing him uh, for a a, a a local I think a local paper in uh, in Berkeley in California, and um, he was also quite a scholar as a as a monk. He was also quite a a, 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 um, a scholar of the Upanishads. He'd written quite a lot of uh, of sort of theological books and comparing Christianity and, and Vedanta and so forth and uh, And this interview was was one of the last ones he made. I think he passed away a few years ago now, but he was in his late eighties and he had this this um uh, you know, very sort of, uh, uh, sort of classically boarding school english accent and uh, the um, I think someone must have played a recording of it because i can I can hear his voice in my my mind's ear <laughs> and they they one of them uh, people asked him what his experience of of spiritual practice now was like in his old age and he says well it's wonderful it's really it's quite quite marvellous actually because I used to be so so full of stuff I used to know so much it's all gone (laughs) I wrote so many books and I didn't even know what they were about it's all as long as I can remember which door I left my sandals at I'm fine but and he was and the, the whole tone of it was like he really didn't mind, uh, all these erudite and wise things he had to say about uh, the, the Gospels and the Upanishads. Like, <laughs> it was all, didn't, none of it really mattered. And he was completely at ease with the fact that he could hardly remember anything, as long as he didn't get reconnected with his saddles. That yeah, was the, 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 you know, the only important thing. And I thought it was, uh, I often use that as an example of someone who is aging wisely, because uh, often as those those faculties diminish that uh, because those the, the, the memories are less accessible you can't remember that person's name think i know i know them I know, what the heck's that woman's name Gee, she's, she's standing there talking to me and what the heck's her name i just can keep smiling and nodding and it'll come back to me i hope you know <laughs> so the main thing is not suffering because uh, as time goes by, those memories will get less and less accessible. Even if you're a very wise and mindful and spiritual person like Father Bede, it all goes eventually um, for most people. And so that, uh, that as those faculties diminish and, and memory and other functions are less efficient and less reliable, and there's more and more blank spaces, or senior moments, as they get called, then uh, the, the main thing is, is to be mindful of, oh look, blank. <laughs> That's interesting, I used to know that person's name and now it's completely gone. Oh. Uh, or like Father Bede talking about his erudite writings. What the heck was I talking about?
1: somehow there was some scientific interest in finding out whether nuns or monastics have the same brain of Alzheimer's than other people. And so I don't know exactly how that came about. They, they dedicated there to tell me that they, their brains can be um, studied after mm-hmm. their death. And their diaries could be checked or whatever. So there was a long-term study, I don't know about. Um, over how many years? And what they found out is that in the brains, they they kind of um, tested. There was the same rate of Alzheimer's. Uh, um, how to say? Decay. Decay or all the signs of Alzheimer's mm-hmm.
2: you can can uh,
1: find on on. A Signs of Alzheimer or, or hardly signs of uh-huh. Alzheimer. And when they looked at the diaries, it was more that they would like what you said about Father Coppin, they they could just acknowledge it or say, Oh God, you know, um, have mercy with me. So they didn't start so what what seems to happen with Alzheimer patients is that they are so afraid of of being seen as forgetful that they make up all these maneuvers to yeah. hide things into defend themselves and then the mind gets more and more and more uh-huh. and so they didn't go down that road. So in that sense they had the mindfulness in, you know,
0: with the same yes. symptoms yeah. um, but not the, the actual uh, psychological complications from that's Yes, that's really, uh, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not surprised at all because uh, it's you can be mindful of extremely deranged mind states. Yeah. And uh or, or you can be mindful of not being able to remember anything. Well, like when when Ajahn Chah's um, his uh, stroke and brain injury. Uh, well, not brain injury, because his uh, as his his illness progressed, he lost more and more of his mental functions. And uh, he used this. And sometimes he would try and say something, and the wrong words would come out. Like he'd try and say, you know "Good morning, sister." And he'd say, uh, "Green Tuesday," yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, and, like, and he knew he'd said the the, ro- the wrong words had come out. And uh, and the, the exa- he he uh, the way he described it, he said like, if you remember telephone exchanges, where a telephone operator they take a a, a wire and then plug it into a socket to join one caller to the to the the, the person who's receiving the call. Uh, it's called a for those. Dis- there's a less than 40 or 50 years old, it's called a Telephone Exchange. So the, he said, the, the monkeys are playing in the telephone exchange. <laughs> but, uh, so he could get, his, he'd get his faculties together enough to, to explain it, like this image of the monkeys kind of plugging the, 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 um, the wires into the wrong sockets. So that He's trying to say, good morning, sister, and Green Tuesday comes out. It's like, no, I didn't say that at all. <laughs> <laughs> that the, the the signal is going one way, and then the, the it's being it's appearing out the wrong uh, the wrong window is opening up, but he but also he knew how not to suffer about it mm-hmm. whereas uh, as, just as you're describing of those those Christian sisters that they they knew oh, oh there he goes <laughs> rather than experiencing it in a, as um as a loss or something that is distressing it just that is okay well. I had that faculty, and now it's gone. Okay, <laughs> and, the, uh, and I, I think that's absolutely correct. That it's a lot of the difficulties come mm-hmm. from that feeling of lack of control, and uh, the, having had something that you thought was yours, and it's now taken away from you. It's lost to you, and that the distress that comes from that, and the feelings, the powerlessness, and that. Uh, <coughs> If the, if the attitude is, is skillful, then, that, then uh, 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 even as the faculties diminish and, and get more and more scattered, the mindfulness can still be there, uh, even as, as things really fall to pieces. Uh, there they can be uh, a clear mindfulness and awareness, but less and less control. Yes, Michelle? That's your name, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Feeling of the body, because as you've been talking, it brings to mind a situation I visited a client I was looking after, and they had dementia, and I hadn't seen them for a long time. And when I went in, he said to me, "I can't remember your name, but I remember the feeling." So it was really Hmm. interesting. It really helped me turn my thinking around on how you approach people from you. Mm-hmm. Because there's also body memory, your your body will
0: Yeah, I think it certainly is a is a part of it. With part of the uh, one of. The- Yeah, it's, it's certainly, it's, it's part of it, and the the more that, um, you, know, that you know, memories are, are, are sort of uh, mirrored in the body in many ways. And that, oh, so I, it's, it's interesting what you say about that, that uh, client of yours, that, uh, I can't remember your name, but I remember, <laughs> I remember the feeling of, of your presence, yeah. Very good, okay. Leave it there for today.